Jerry, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld, in one of his little bits, talks about being on an airplane and you know the, the, the pilot comes on the PA system and says, uh, we're going to reach a cruising altitude of 20,000 feet, we'll make our way over across Pittsburgh and then slightly south direction towards St. Louis, and then we'll reach a cruising altitude of 15,000 feet before we make our final descent into Denver. And Seinfeld says, you know, we're all as passengers back in the back of the plane thinking, yeah, no, whatever it takes. You do whatever you have to do to get us to where it says on the ticket. That's pretty much all we care about. Because when you're on a plane, efficiency is the key, right? When you're breathing artificial air and you're stuck in this long plastic tube that is an airplane, efficiency is key. Now let's say, though, that you're touring Florence, Italy. If you're making that kind of tour on foot, you want commentary. You want explanation and instruction and guidance. Why do you want those things? Well, because Florence is, is beautiful. And it's filled with beautiful and glorious things. You meander through Florence. You stroll through Florence. There would be something wrong with you if you were just running from Michelangelo's David and you see it and you're like, okay, where's the, next, where's the Piazza Domo? Where, where do we go? Okay, let's go here. And then on to the next, on to the next. And you're just if, trying to run through Florence with efficiency. That's not how you do it. Today, we are back in Ephesians. We started in Ephesians back in January doing a Bible study in the book of Ephesians. And, so, and by the way, if you're just joining us and you want to catch up, all of those recordings are available on SoundCloud, uh, which can be accessed through our website, kingscrossokc.com. So you're welcome to check those out. But so far in the book of Ephesians, in the first two, and now we're into the third chapter of Ephesians, Paul has been explaining life in gospel territory. And it's been like a tour, it's been more like a tour of Florence than it has like a red eye to Denver. In fact, Armitage Robinson, re regarding Paul's kind of cadence in this tour of the gospel in the book of Ephesians, he describes Paul in these early chapters like an, like an eagle rising and wheeling around as though for a little while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he shall take right? You stroll in beautiful settings. And that's what Paul has, has been doing. And that's what you do in the land of God's grace to us. And from the outside, the gospel of Jesus looks uh, limited. It looks outdated. It looks out of touch. But once you get on the inside, you see open vistas, broad horizons, endless rolling hills, and so in our, in our chapter this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Paul is going to continue his tour of gospel territory. So let's read the text. You've probably already read it at home, but we're going to read it again as we get into it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... 
assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the, by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's word. And this morning I want us to consider three things from this text. The mystery, the mission, and the man. The mystery, the mission, and the man. So first, the mystery. Paul describes in the first verse the sufferings that he has experienced as a result of his proclamation of the gospel. Uh, he, he's been imprisoned. In fact, he's likely writing this book of Ephesians from an imprisonment. Uh, Paul actually kind of does some of his best work being imprisoned. And he's being imprisoned on behalf of those that he's writing to, right? For the sake of his, because he's been proclaiming the gospel to, uh, to the Gentiles. And then he speaks of this mystery. Now, what's a mystery? A mystery is um, something that is unknown that has to be revealed. Right? And he said, and so, and we mentioned this last week. C.S. Lewis said, says that the, the Christian gospel is so unexpected. It is not what we would expect. Because when humans sit down to concoct a religion or a way to God, what they inevitably do is describe how the soul ascends to God, or the gods, or the heavens, or whatever the goal is. But Christianity describes not an ascent of humanity, but the descent of Christ, of God himself, down to rescue sinners. That's not what we would have expected God to do. And yet that's what he's done. And one aspect of this gospel, there, there's a mystery to one aspect of this, and it's, it's this, verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, that's, this is a very important aspect of the gospel for most of us, I would assume. You know, the biblical account has basically two types of people. There are, there are Jews, 
And there are non-Jews, also known as Gentiles. So Paul is writing predominantly to Gentiles. And he's saying, look, the mystery is that you, Gentiles, have equal access to God through Christ. Which is important for most of us in our congregation. Now you might think, well, I thought, I thought the promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations. Right, so how is this a surprise? Hasn't this sort of been expected from the beginning? And didn't the Hebrews, when they fled out of Egypt, didn't they take with them lots of Egyptians as well that were then kind of engrafted into the people of Israel? Yes. And wasn't Rahab a Gentile that was brought into the fold of Israel? Yes. And what, weren't the Jewish people supposed to be a light unto the nations? that had this magnetic force that would draw the nations in to the people of Israel? Yes, yes, yes. But here's the development. The development is this. In Christ, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In Christ, Gentiles and Jews are on equal footing. And that's a surprise. In fact, this is the most controversial aspect of the gospel for the early church. The whole book of Ephesians is dealing with this very issue because the Jewish Christians in the book of Galatians, um, Paul is writing, is very upset because the Jewish Christians are, are requiring the male Christians to be circumcised. Yes, faith in Christ, they say, but, if, but to really become a Christian, you also have to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, you... you The gospel plus anything equals something totally different than the gospel. If you add anything to the gospel, if you add baptism to the gospel, if you add circumcision, if you add daily devotion readings, if you add anything to the gospel, you have turned the gospel into another man-made constructed religion. The soul's ascent, right? Because it has a a work bound up in it. And it's an affront to the gospel of grace. And so this is, a, this is a huge breakthrough, major development, that we Gentiles have equal access to Christ. Now, we, we, like I mentioned, we, we bought a puppy a few weeks ago. And the thing that the person that we, we got the puppy from said was, this, this puppy loves to be held. And we picked it up and held it. And, and his name is Max. And so Max, as soon as we held him, he would immediately nestle his little head into our neck. It's very precious. Um, and that's what he wants to do. And when he's tired, he nestles his head into your neck or nestles into you. He wants close contact with you. Okay. That, we were created to be nestled into the loving care and rest of our creator. God the Father. But we find ourselves outside of that care. Because of our own rebellion, right? Not only are we not resting in God, but we are running in the opposite direction of him. Following Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Moving in the opposite direction. And so as a result of that, we find ourselves like in a spiritual freefall. It's as though we are, we are flying uh, down a cliff, 
fighting and clawing, trying to slow down the slide. And here's how we do that. Here's how we slow down the slide. We, we latch on to these little footholds and nooks on this mountain of our own accomplishments. Maybe it's, I, I was a valedictorian, or I got this elite internship in college, or my family um, has, the, has, is, 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 um, has the best yard on the block, or my kids made the honor roll, or I'm rich and I'm better than all those poor people that don't work hard, or I'm poor and I'm better than all those rich people that have everything handed to them and I have to work and I have to be resourceful, or I'm white, therefore I'm better, or I'm black, therefore I'm better, or I'm brown, therefore I'm better. All of these are efforts to somehow perch ourselves up over against those around us so that we can feel better about our spiritual freefall. It's like we're all just sort of stuck up against a cliff wall with our little feet on these little accomplishments. And the rocks are sort of crumbling underneath our feet. And that's where we are. And life in this mode is very precarious. Life is precarious on this wall. By the way, contrast this with life in gospel territory, right? The wide open spaces that are available in the land of God's grace. But as, as we are busying ourselves, building up our resume, the mystery of God drops down from heaven. Grace. That God made a way for sinners, right? John 3.16, for God so loved Jews or Gentiles or God so loved the whole world, right? All nations, Jew, Gentile, that whosoever, that he sent his son Jesus and whoever believes in Jesus will be saved, will have everlasting life. And what does it mean to believe? Well, um, someone that you've not seen in the last four weeks but has been here, the person I've been preaching to every week is Tommy. He's right, I'm, I'm looking at him right now. And he's done a great job. And every week, I believe, I believe in Tommy. I believe that when I show up, he's going to have all of this stuff set up for, me, for us. In fact, I don't even know if you're there right now. But I'm trusting Tommy, I'm believing that this thing is working right now and that you are there. And so, so for me to believe in Tommy to execute the technical achievement that we've been doing every week, it requires me to do nothing, really. Like if I'm looking over Tommy's shoulder and I'm like, why is that, that cord doesn't look like it's plugged in right? Or why is that light flashing? Or is that mic on over there? If I'm over, looking over Tommy's shoulder, asking him all these questions, I'm not really believing in him. I'm not trusting him. That's what, that's what trust is. Belief means for me to do nothing and to sit back and let Tommy do the work, do the heavy lifting. And that's what faith is, that we trust Jesus to do the work, which means we sit back and simply rest in him. That's grace, and that breaks down walls of hostility, Paul says, for all nations, Jew, Gentile, Irish, Uyghur, Chilean, Taiwanese, Ghanaian, and that's the mystery. That Christ is uniting one people out of many nations and tongues and tribes. Point two, the mission. So, 
I could see, I could see you thinking, okay, if, if this sounds great, this grace of God, free gift, but if I do nothing to enter into gospel territory and it's just wide open spaces of God's grace, it's more like a tour of Florence than it is uh, like an efficient red eye to Denver. If it's all of those things, does that sort of make me lazy, spiritually speaking? Um, do I just sort of meander my way aimlessly through life like a tourist, just consuming uh, and taking, but really offering nothing to the community of which I'm, I'm, I'm in? And the answer is no, not at all. Look, look at the grace of God in Paul's life. It makes him relentless and tireless. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel of grace, Paul says, I was made a minister according to what, his, his intellect or his hard work or his stellar record as a, as a religious Jew? No, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him by the working of Paul's power? No, by the working of God's power. Look at, look at all of it is rooted in God's gracious activity. Paul is operating fully and completely out of grace. And look, it is driving his tireless and fruitful work. And it's work that the world is still nourishing upon to this day. Right, Paul is, Paul is, is uh, what, the, what the Christian gospel is doing is it's, it's operating a fundamentally different way of living in the world. Right, humanity busily builds up its resume for dealing with the cosmic existential weight of being outside of God's rest. Right, I mean, think about it. American civilization, and not to mention the Romans and the Greeks, and the Persians, and the Babylonians, and the Assyrians, and all other major global powers have all operated, Eugene Peterson says, by the persistent denial of God's grace. Right? The strongest global civilizations have operated out of a denial of grace. They're competing to build domination over the world. Right? Um, the most productive cubicle on the floor is more than likely operating out of a denial of grace. They're trying to beat their neighbor and, and climb that corporate ladder. And it, it seems effective and it, it does some pretty impressive things, right? But it's driven by fear and pride and it eventually runs us ragged. But look, the grace of God in Paul's life gave him a mission of the utmost importance that compels us as well to do the same, right? To, to make known to the world what has been a secret of the universe, and that is that God makes a way for sinners by grace, that there is life available, life in gospel territory, and it is life abundant. And once you get inside gospel territory, it recalibrates everything. Your working life will be transformed by life in gospel territory. Uh, again, to cite Eugene Peterson, he says that work, what we're doing when, when it comes to human labor, when it comes to our jobs, is we are providing containers for grace. Containers for grace. What does that mean? 
Here's what he means. Once you get inside gospel territory, once you see that the center decisive act in human history was God pouring himself out for sinners, you begin to realize that all of life is gift. That all of creation is gift. That when God made the world, latent in that world was chocolate chip cookies and automobiles and cell phone technology. Gifts abundant are, are latent in God's creation. And so when we work, what are humans doing? Well, we're making containers for that grace, for the gift of God's creation. So that the farmer who's out working in the, in the field, he's, he's working in the soil and with seed. And as God gives the sun and the rain, it produces the fruit that he harvests. And he sends it to the baker who bakes bread that th we then taste, which gives us energy, yes. But it also tastes incredible, right? It's gift. And all of these workers are providing, they're, they're providing containers for grace, for the gift. The healthcare workers uh, that have been working across the globe to deal with this coronavirus. They're taking the wisdom of, of centuries and millennia. And they're taking the, the, the technology that has been developed by engineers. The, the containers of grace, right? That engineers have developed and created. And they're offering it in the care that they provide the sick during this time. Right? That's what human labor is. It's, it's not us competing... To, to get an edge over the other company down the road. It's an effort to provide the world a container of grace and point to the fundamental reality of all the universe, that grace is at the center, a gracious, loving God. So, gospel territory unifies us from our enemies. It gives us a new motivation for work and evangelism. And it helps us to gain proper perspective regarding ourselves. Look at verse 8. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. See, Christians talk big of God and talk little of themselves. Look at what Paul says. He says, though I'm the least. You could translate that, I'm the smallest or the littlest. Though I'm the littlest. And Paul's name literally means little in Latin. So his, in, in his very name, Paul is little. Um, and tradition has it that Paul was actually a, a short little fella. And, which means he was little in stature. But he was also little morally speaking. He constantly puts himself in terms of, of being like the chief among sinners. Morally speaking, Paul is a little mite. And one of the reasons he is is because when the first Christian martyr is being martyred, Stephen is being stoned, do you know who's sitting there watching approvingly? Luke tells us. Paul. Paul is persecuting the church. And God, by his grace, grabs him. And that's what God's grace does. It, it allows us to, it frees us to readily admit how little we are. To readily admit our faults, our problems, our issues. That's what God's grace does. 
This past week, uh, the state of New York sort of turned the corner on this. Uh, and I was watching, we've seen a lot of Andrew Cuomo, the, the governor of New York, um, in what appears to be do doing you know, a, a really relentless job of trying to keep the state, caring for the state as best he can, right? Keeping people inside. And, and as they turned the corner, Cuomo's comments, he, he said, he said something very interesting. He said, we did this. We did this. He said, it was not, and he went out of his way to say this, it was not an act of God. God did not do this. Faith did not do this. We did this. And I thought, well, well, the first thought that came to mind is, um, was to, uh, to quote Kip from Napoleon Dynamite, like anybody can even know that. How can we know supernatural causation? But then as I thought about it a bit more, I, I thought, you know, what Cuomo said in that statement is a perfect reflection of the posture of my own heart apart from Christ. Right? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 3, Paul says, we were running from God. In, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that, that we, um, God has made his activity in the world, his invisible attributes have been made known through his creation all around us. And what have we done? We have actively suppressed the activity of God in creation and in our lives and have said, nothing to see here. No supernatural work to see here, right? It is, it is Babel, right? The, the effort to build up and make a name for ourselves apart from God through our own might, hard work, and tech, technology. That's what Babel was. And so as we're running and suppressing the reality of God all around us, what does Paul say? We just, you guys just read it in the liturgy. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. But God, because of his great love towards us, when we were running from him, when we were suppressing him in our lives, he grabbed us because of his love. He made us alive. He forgives us. He redeems us. He makes us his children. And so we're free to, to take an honest assessment of our own hearts, because the deeper we understand our sin, the deeper we fall into Christ's love for us. And so, verse 8, let's, let's keep pushing forward. What is Paul preaching? Look at verse 8. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And already Paul has covered a lot of ground in these first three chapters. He's spoken of the fact that in Christ we've received every spiritual blessing, that we've been adopted by God, that we've been declared holy and blameless, and indeed we are actually becoming those things by the power of the Spirit. We've been redeemed. We are recipients of God's eternal inheritance. We have working inside of us, Paul has said already, resurrection power enabling us to do God's work. He's made us alive. God is showering upon us his immeasurable riches for all eternity. We are God's masterpiece, Paul says in chapter 2. And then, and then the latest development, Paul says, is that we have, 
we have racial, cultural, and social reconciliation available in Christ. That he's broken down the wall of hostility. And so little Paul has a big job, as well as us, littles, right? The work of ministry is a big deal. Especially in our own age, it's, it's very tempting to think of the church as kind of a, you know, an extra. Like, I love Jesus, but the church is sort of a, a nice option that's available that you can take or leave. It doesn't really matter. But look at verse 10. Look at what Paul says. Through the church, the manifold wisdom, and, and the word manifold, it's, it, the, what, what it describes is the, the texture, that there is an intricate, textured uh, richness to this wisdom of God. It is layered. It's like a tapestry. That this wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That the church puts on display to a spiritual audience of which we can only imagine. Angels and demons and spiritual beings are all watching with bated breath at how God is displaying his wisdom to worlds unknown through the church. It's incredible. And that's what the church is. Let's finally consider our, our final point, the man, the man. There is a single source for life in gospel territory, and it is the man, God, Jesus Christ. Verse 11. It says that all of this is according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week we talked, we celebrated on Easter, we celebrated the, the resurrection of Christ, that he is risen. And not only was he raised from the dead, but he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is ruling and reigning over all of creation. Right? And all things are going to be united to him. Abraham Kuyper, the, the famous Dutch theologian, said that, that Jesus is Lord, and there's not a square inch of the universe that Jesus doesn't declare mine. And it's his. And it's all being united, tethered to his loving rule and care. And the church is the place where this is, this is already being realized. Right? The church is a body of people praying together that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That Christ would reign here on earth amongst this congregation of believers as he does in heaven. And so as we, as we spend time as Christians in gospel territory, look at everything that happens. As we roam the open pastures of, of life and God's gracious landscape. Look at what happens. There's racial reconciliation. We have a new motivation for work and evangelism. We have the freedom to think little of ourselves. And at the same time, we as, as members of Christ's church are stars in a cosmic drama that worlds unknown are watching. And then look at finally at verse 12. We're humble, right? We speak of ourselves as the littles, the littlest, the least. And yet at the same time, we have boldness, verse 12, and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. 
Look at the confidence that it gives. There's this, Christ, Christians have life in gospel territory brings this unique combination of humility and confidence. Right? Humility, because we know that we are, we are the least of, of sinners, that, we, that we are the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we're keenly aware of that. It makes us humble. But we're confident because we know that God loves us more than we can imagine. And we're secure and resting, finally, where our heart's rest was, was meant to be, in the loving care of God the Father. That's what life in gospel territory does. Let's, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, this, this gift of life in gospel territory, it is, uh, it is a dizzying tour that Paul has taken us upon. And we confess that we, uh, while we may understand a few things intellectually, while our heart may leap with excitement at aspects of this truth, that unless your spirit performs a work in our hearts, we don't get changed by it. And we want to be changed. We ask that you would unite us deeper to Christ, that we would rest uh, in him, and that you would also, uh, by a supernatural work of the spirit, unite us to one another. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.